Turn your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. We started last uh, Wednesday night on the, um, the, uh, the book of Ephesians. We really didn't get to uh, the letter. We started over in Acts chapter 16 where the Bible tells us about Paul's first visit to the city of Philippi, which is the chief city of Macedonia. And uh, it wasn't Paul's first choice of where to go. He tried to go two other places. The Holy Ghost wouldn't let him go there. And finally, he had a vision in the night from, uh, and he saw a man in Macedonia, from Macedonia, saying, come over here and help us. So they gathered that that was the direction of the Lord, that that was where God wanted them to go. So they went to the biggest city in Macedonia, which is Philippi. Um, you remember the story how that shortly thereafter they got uh, uh, certain people saved, started the church. Well, after a certain period of time, they were on their way to a time of prayer and um, there was a little girl that was a fortune teller. She was a slave girl that was telling fortunes for her master. They cast the devil out of that little girl and she lost her ability to tell fortunes. And as a result, there was a big uproar in the city. They beat Paul and, and uh, Silas, threw them in jail, and then found out the next day that they were Roman citizens. Of course, uh, overnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners, uh, all the prisoners heard them. It was out loud, loud enough for everybody to know what was going on. There was an earthquake, and everybody's bands were loosed, and everybody's prison doors came open. Next morning, the jailer um, or the governor sent guards to turn Paul and Silas loose, and they found out they were Roman citizens, and so they knew they were in big trouble. They implored Paul and Silas to leave town. They couldn't command them to go so go from the city, but they asked them to because uh, apparently they didn't feel like they could provide protection for them, and uh, so Paul and Silas left. Now, Paul is writing this letter when he's in prison in Rome, uh, somewhere 58, 59, maybe 60 A.D. He was in, uh, imprisoned in Rome from 58 to 60 A.D. Uh, so sometime during that time, he uh, is writing this letter to the Philippian church. And um, uh, the, the first chapter of Philippians, the first uh, 11 verses, Paul is giving greetings and salutations, and he really... Um, he shares more of his heart with this church than, than, in my opinion, than any of the others. We might call Philippi the church that Paul loved. You remember when John wrote his gospel late in his life, many years, almost 60 years after Jesus was crucified, um, John identified himself in his own gospel as the disciple that Jesus loved. Well, Philippi is the church that, that Paul loved. We'll start in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, they didn't have to explain who Timothy is. Timothy was there in Acts chapter 16, so they know who he is. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, Timothy is with Paul in Rome. We don't have any record that he went to Rome on the, the voyage where they were shipwrecked and all that kind of stuff. He's never mentioned. But apparently, after Paul gets to Rome, Timothy joins him. You know as well as I do that the last part of the last few verses of Acts 28 says that Paul was uh, for two years in Rome in his own hired house. So he wasn't in jail. He wasn't in a dungeon of any type. He was in uh, uh, under house arrest, we might say, with a guard, a Praetorian guard, uh, watching over him. So apparently Timothy, and, and the scripture even says people were able to come and go to him as he pleased. So apparently Timothy has joined him at the time this letter is written. And notice that Paul does not have to identify himself as the apostle to Philippi. In many of the other letters that he writes, he has to assert his apostleship. 
He has to assert the, the uh, office that God has called him to and the, the place that he stands, but not with these guys. Because there is no reason, no specific wrong doctrine, no specific error or situation occurring in the church to undermine it to such a degree that Paul would have to assume or assert his apostleship. So he just calls himself a servant, which is really the, the Greek word slave. He said, Paul and, uh, Timothy, Paul and Timothy, the slaves of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. Notice he calls the church saints. This is uh, going back to the Old Testament, an Old Testament reference where God says of Israel that he separated them a holy nation unto himself. And even Daniel talking about the end times, that the remnant would be holy saints before God. So he uses this, um, this terminology in talking about the church. And notice he mentions the deacons and the bishops. Now, and everywhere that Paul went, every church that he established, he recognized Paul and his company, not just him, but all, everybody in his company, recognized the need for, to establish and develop leadership in those churches. You know as well as I do that the first time Paul goes to a city, the gospel hasn't been preached there. He gets people saved. Nobody is really qualified to be the leader. But over periods of time, short times, long times, depends. It might be different from one church to the next. But over a period of time, leadership qualities would and should develop in believers that mature. It's interesting to note that Paul never established any specific title for a church. A leader in the church is what I'm talking about. Paul did not coin the word pastor. As a matter of fact, the King James translators are, are as responsible for the title of pastor than, than anything else we have in Scripture. Paul uses the term shepherd. King James translators translated pastor, and so now we have pastors. So when Paul is talking about bishops and deacons, the deacons are just servants, anybody that serves in the church. But the bishops, literally this word means overseers. He's talking about the leaders in the church. Now, I want you to notice Paul's uh, method in his writings. He doesn't just write to the church. He's going to talk to the church about how much he loves them. But he doesn't just mention the church. He talks to the church about the leaders. He's always trying to get the people of the church, the congregation, the, lay, the laity, one might call them, to recognize that God has a leadership organization in anything that he establishes. Can you see that? So he says, Paul and Timothy, the servants, slaves of Jesus Christ. Most people would think he's a servant or a slave of Caesar. But Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus. Which are at Philippi, to the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops, overseers, and deacons. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's lots and lots, tons of uh, contemporary writings, personal letters, documents, and so forth, from this period of time that this is written. And so we know from those um, letters and other things that have been unearthed and discovered that if you were writing a letter in Greek, uh, if you were uh, a Greek writing to another Greek, the normal salutation would be to wish the recipients of the letter joy. If you were writing in Latin, you would wish the recipients of the letter good health. Nobody wishes anybody peace. Because the Greek word for peace really doesn't have a, a, um, a strong enough, a clear enough meaning that conveys anything that you'd want to say. 
Paul is going back to the Hebrew word shalom. It's not the Hebrew word. This is written in Greek. But he's going back to the Hebrew concept of, of peace under the old covenant. The Hebrew word shalom means blessings. The sum total of blessings are blessings in every area. And so when Paul is making salutations or greetings to the churches, and not just this church, but in most, uh, most of the churches he writes to, he says the same thing. He says, peace be unto you, and peace comes from the grace of God. So he expands on it and says, grace and peace be unto you. From God our Father, that's where grace comes from, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very personal letter, folks. Paul is identifying his relationship with Jesus. He calls Jesus his Lord. Why does he do that? Because he wants everybody else to have the same relationship with him that he does. Now notice verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Well, Paul and Timothy are not I. Notice the personal nature of this letter. Now in Colossians 1.3, it talks about Paul and Timothy are writing that letter. And he says, we give thanks to God upon every remembrance of you. But here he leaves Timothy out. Now, Timothy is involved in the letter. He may even be uh, taking it down as Paul speaks these things. But this is a personal letter to people that Paul loves. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all, for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship. The word fellowship is coined in it means partnership. For your fellowship or partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Here's why Paul loves these people so much. They've been partners with him from day one. From the first time he got to town and started preaching, from the first ones, from Lydia and her family and the others that were at the uh, place where they were washing, from the first time that Paul hit town, there were people that accepted the gospel and have stuck with him from that point forward. Let me read it again. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Notice Paul is not saying, he, he says he thanks God for a lot, to a lot of church, different churches. Really, uh, mostly every church except Galatia. Galatia, the churches at Galatia were the only church Paul didn't have anything to thank God for about them at all. They had let somebody come in and teach another gospel and, and um, tell them back, take them back to the, the keeping of the law and so forth. So he's not thanking God for them at all when he writes to them. But he does give thanks to God for most of the churches. But here specifically... It's a personal note. He said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. Paul has nothing to not be joyful about with this group. For your fellowship, partnership, because you're partners with me in the gospel from the very first day until now. Nothing's interrupted it. Nothing stopped it. Now, remember, Paul's still in chains. Now, what about this church? Do, what do we know about this church? Well, we know certain things. We know, first of all, that they prayed for him. We know also, he's going to say in chapter 4 and verse 3, that upon the, the, uh, his first meeting, or first time that he was at Philippi, in, uh, as recorded in Acts chapter 16, and he was taken captive and beaten, there were those that stood by him and made a defense for him side by side on that day. Well, that would sure grab your heart, wouldn't it? I mean, if you were part of the group that you saw what was going on and they took Paul and Silas captive and commanded and were commanded to beat them and everybody ran like roaches in, when the light comes on, that wouldn't do much for you. But that's not what happened. There were people that risked their own well-being to stand up next to him according to what he says. We also know that they communicated with him with gifts. They would send gifts to him back and forth 
from time to time. As a matter of fact, chapter 2 is going to talk about one of the messengers that they sent a gift to Paul, uh, whose name was Epaphroditus. And he got sick, and, and that was part of the reason that Paul wrote this letter to send him back to, to Philippi to let him, everybody know that, uh, uh, that he's okay and that kind of stuff. And so time and time and time again, these people have stepped up and helped him over and over again. Now, notice what that means. That means there are no factions in the church. There's nobody saying, well, I'm a Peter. Another saying, I'm a Apollos. They're all united. They're all on his side. They're all in support of him. Not only through their words, but also through their actions, through their giving, through their prayers. Paul's got a special place in his heart for these people. He goes further and says, being confident of this very thing. In other words, every time I pray and make requests joyfully for you, I'm confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the, one of the first things that Paul talks about that belongs to him is a good standing with Jesus on the day when we're judged for our activities. The day of Christ that he's talking about is when we'll be judged. Our lifestyles will be judged. Our actions will be judged. The Bible says for the Christian, that's not a day of darkness. It's a day of light. It's something we should look forward to because it's the time when our salvation is completed in every respect. And we enter into eternity with our Lord and Savior. Never to look over our shoulder again. No events left to complete. Once and for all, it's done. And this is what Paul looks for and looks to tell them about because of their partnership with him. Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The reason he brings this out is because that should be what we look forward to. I know most Christians are afraid of that time. They don't understand that it's an award ceremony and we need to start working on our awards here. Even it is meet for me to think this of you all. Notice he says in verse 7, he says, here's the reason why it's appropriate for me to think of you this way. Even as it is meet for me to think of you all, think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. You know of any other church you said that to? It's not recorded. Because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch, for this reason in other words, inasmuch as both in my bonds... And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers. Here's partners again. It's a different word, but it still means partners. You are partners of my grace. Now, notice what he says. He says, you're partners with me in bonds, and you're partners with me in defense and confirmation of the gospel. Keep that phrase in mind, that defense and confirmation of the gospel, because it's going to have a lot to do with the, the majority of this chapter. First 11 verses are Paul making salutations and greetings and saying some personal things to the church. And the last part of the the last 19 verses of the chapter is Paul telling about his situation. He wants to update them on what's going on with him. For God is my record, verse 8, for God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Remember him saying that to any other church? This is a special group for Paul, folks. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now, Paul just said, I I thank my God upon every remembrance and every prayer I pray for you and every request I make of you is with joy because you're so much in my heart and so forth. 
And now notice what he says. Here's what I pray. I pray that your love would abound. But not just love alone. But that your love would abound in knowledge and judgment. Now this is to be compared or contrasted with 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? They were a group that was split in 32 different directions. Some were saying Paul was their guy. Others were saying Peter was their guy. Others were saying, well, I like Apollos better. There were false doctrines in the church. There were doctrines that, um, uh, that served the flesh, that the church, at least certain segments of the church, would stand up and try to defend. They've got a, a real mess on their hands in Corinth. Now, what was the one thing or one of the things that Paul identified as a characteristic of that kind of church or those kind of people? He said that their knowledge had puffed them up. First Corinthians 8 verse 1, he said, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. In other words, they majored on knowledge, but not because they cared about anybody except themselves. Here, Paul turns it around. He says, I pray that your love would abound more and more. But when somebody is really growing and developing in love, they're growing and developing in knowledge. He's not talking about some syrupy, sweet, something or other that's emotional. He's talking about a love of God that leads you into the truth of the word. This is the same author that wrote that those that are spiritually mature have by reason of use discerned their senses to, do, to tell the difference between good and evil. That's what he's saying. That's Paul's prayer for the people that he loves the most. He said, and I pray, this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That, or so that, you may approve things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Now, how do you approve things that are excellent? Folks, there's a lot of things that, that are easy to judge between what's good and what's evil. Good and bad is an easy choice. But good and best is, or good and excellent, that's a harder choice. And notice he says that the love of God that develops in knowledge and judgment brings you to that place. I know a lot of people that are running themselves ragged and, and being kept from the things, the, the most important things that God wants for them to do because they're doing good stuff. And they look around to see what they can trim off of their lives and they say, but, uh, but these are good things. These are works that God is pleased with. Not if it keeps you away from the most important things. That you may approve things that are excellent and that you may be sincere and without offense. Till the day of Christ. Second time he mentions the day of Christ. That should be our goal. That should be our target. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Now folks the fruits of righteousness is just another way of saying. The fruit of the spirit that he identifies in Galatians chapter 5. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Which are by Jesus Christ into the glory and praise of God. That's the church that, that Paul has a special affinity for. That's a place. Uh, a church that has a special place in his heart. Now he starts talking in verse 12 about his current condition, his current situation. Remember, he's in Rome. He's under house arrest. He knows that the church at Philippi knows that he's in, in uh, uh, well, that he's a prisoner. I don't want to say he's in prison because that's not accurate, but that he is a prisoner. He knows that. Now, if you're in Philippi, remember your experience with Paul. He cast the devil out of a little fortune-telling girl, slave girl. Got thrown in jail and beaten. Miraculous opening of the jailer of the prison doors and so forth. Next day, they have to leave town. 
He hasn't been there a long time. It's the only record that we have that Paul was at Philippi up to this point in time. Well, the only thing the Bible tells us happened while he was at Philippi. There was one other visit that the Bible mentions that he went through Philippi, but it doesn't tell us that he stayed, doesn't tell us he spent any time there whatsoever. So they haven't had a lot of face-to-face contact with Paul unless there are other things that the Bible doesn't relate to us. Now, somebody that they care enough about or care as much about Paul as the Bible seems to indicate that they did because of what they did for him, they're going to be very concerned about him. They're going to be very concerned about what happens when the leader of the church, and Paul is uh, considered to be at this time one of the two big guys, Peter and Paul, one of the two main leaders of the church, Peter the apostle to to the Jews, Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. They've got to wonder what's going to happen. Nero is the emperor that Paul has appealed to, and he's a nut job. And the, the, during Paul's first imprisonment, he, Nero has not advanced to his greatest stage of insanity. But he is not a picnic under any circumstances. So there's no way for anybody to know for sure what's going to happen. It'd be easy to say, well, Paul didn't do anything wrong. Like that matters. That could have absolutely no bearing on what Nero does. Fortunately, at the time that Paul is in uh, uh, under house arrest in Rome, Nero is not looking to the church as its problem. At this point in time, in these years that Paul is held prisoner, there are some major battles that are going on in the province, uh, a province of Rome, the outlying areas of Rome, uh, of the Roman Empire, I mean, not Rome, the city. But the Roman Empire is having to defend itself, and so is Nero and some of the other leadership is much more occupied with other things than they are the, the issue of, of uh, persecuting the church and, and so forth like he will in a few years. So Paul is hopeful, I'm sure, and so are the, is the church at Philippi, but there's no way to be sure. So Paul wants to bring them up to date. So he says in verse 12, But I would, would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened to me, talking about my imprisonment, the things which have happened to me have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. First, time, first thing Paul says is, here's what I want you to know. You would think that the apostles to the Gentile, the apostle to the Gentiles, would be most effective when he's free to go to the Gentile cities. But Paul is saying, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. This has advanced the gospel, not hindered it. The things that have happened to me, well, what's happened to him? Well, he's been persecuted in Jerusalem. That's what caused him to appeal to Caesar to begin with and, and uh, start on the journey and the shipwreck and all the other things that happened, all the other disasters and, and uh, things that, that would make a normal guy give up, I think. He's saying all these have advanced the gospel. You wouldn't expect tragedy. You, I'm, I'm sure Paul didn't plan for the, the, his trip to Rome to go the way that it went. Are there times that things don't go the way you think they're going to go? Notice he says that this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. It has advanced the gospel. Verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ, I'm not a prisoner of Caesar. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all the other places. What's happening, folks, is that Paul is preaching to the Praetorian Guard. Every time they change shifts, it's a new guy. He makes sure that everybody knows I'm not a political prisoner. I'm not a criminal. I'm in chains because I believe in Jesus. Let me tell you about it. Well, what do these guys do when they go back to the barracks? 
They're talking about this famous, and Paul is a famous, he's a very distinguished prisoner. He's a Roman citizen who has appealed to Caesar. In other words, the only reason he's in bonds is because he has desired to see Caesar and to plead his case before him personally. That's not a normal event. That's not a normal course. That's a last resort for most people. And when Paul is known to be in, in bonds because of his beliefs, and not because of some seditious act against the Roman Empire. He becomes even more famous. And notice he says it's all throughout the palace. He says the whole palace knows why I'm in prison. The whole palace knows about me believing in Jesus. And, he, and then he mentions some other, uh, some, another phrase. He said in all the palace and in all other places. Now what does that mean? Well it could mean anybody that has anything to do with his defense. It could mean anybody that has anything to do with his case coming before Caesar. This is like a courtroom folks. The other side has to bring a case against him. Now, you may remember, and if you don't, I encourage you to read uh, Acts 28, when it talks about when Paul finally arrives at Rome. After three days of being in Rome, he calls the Jewish leaders to him, and they come. And he says, I'm here because there there was a charge made against me by the Jews in Jerusalem. And he tells them what was going on, and they relate to him, but we haven't gotten any letters about anything we don't know anything much about you. Well, they would know who he was just by reputation. But we don't know anything about you as far as charges made against you. We don't have anything against you. And so Paul preached to them about Jesus. Some believed, others didn't. They left with great reasonings and disputing among themselves. And Paul says, well, the prophet's for sure true when he says the blind can't see because the hearts are hardened. And, you know, parting words and, and so forth. But in order for there to be a case, somebody's got to bring an accusation against him. There's nobody in Rome to bring an accusation against Paul. That's probably the reason why he stayed in bonds for two years. Caesar is waiting for there to be a case brought against him. There may never have been a case brought against Paul. There may have been after two years, Nero just sent word and said, well, nobody's ever going to say anything about why this guy's supposed to be here or why he's in jail. So let's just turn him loose. We don't know. We don't have the details about what happened or why. But we do know this. We know that it's widespread throughout the city of Rome. Now that brings up something else that Paul talks about is going on in the city of Rome because he's a prisoner. Notice he says, and many of the brethren, verse 14, many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Now, what this means is very simple this. We know what's going on in the city of Rome. The book of Romans was written from, uh, from Ephesus about two years prior to Paul being put in prison and uh, reaching Rome and held in prison for those two years. So this... Uh, is a, the book that uh, the letter that was written to the Romans is about two, maybe three years before this letter was written. And you remember all the things that happened in Rome and the things that Paul had to address. There was all kinds of factions in the church, all kinds of false doctrines, Gnosticism, and different things like that. Well, that's the condition of the church when Paul arrives in Rome. So Paul is saying there's several things that are happening, and all of them are advancing the gospel because I am a famous prisoner. Because people are talking about why I'm in jail. Because I believe in Jesus. Some of the true believers are standing up and proclaiming their belief in Jesus. 
And it's giving them boldness to say, I believe in him too. And here's what it is. Here's what Christianity is. But then he says, others are preaching Christ out of contention, trying to make it harder for me. Now, what would that mean? Well, we know that the Roman church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. We know that the Roman church is made up of false doctrines, those that are teaching false doctrines. And so there may be Gnostics and others that are there. There are those, I'm sure there are Jews that believed in Paul's cause. I'm sure there are Gentiles that believed in Paul's cause. But I know that there were probably members of each group that didn't believe in his cause, that believed in the accusations of the Jews that Paul is trying to stir up trouble and create a problem and, and so forth. So you got some that are envious of Paul's notoriety. And so they're preaching Christ. Maybe not the pure message. Maybe not the way that you and I would share Jesus. But they're preaching Christ in a way so that it might be worse for Paul to stir up trouble in the city so that it's worse for Paul. And Paul just says, whether they're doing it for the right reason or for the wrong reason, is causing Jesus to be preached and the gospel to be advanced. Again, he's emphasizing the point, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. So he picks it up and says, what then? Verse 18, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is priest, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Notice what you do in prison. Now, this is going to have special meaning for the Philippians because you remember in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were in jail. At midnight, they prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them, and they brought about their deliverance. What does Paul do in jail when he's in Rome? He rejoices. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. The word salvation is translated in most uh, other translations as the word deliverance. Now, there's, there's some disagreement, and you can decide for yourself what Paul means by this. Because if he's talking about deliverance, what does he mean? Does he mean deliverance from jail? Possibly. Does he mean turn to his salvation, meaning turn to his credit? God will credit him for it because he was faithful? Possibly. But there's another possibility too, and that is he could be saying, I know that just like praising God in prison got me out of prison in Philippi, my rejoicing in prison will get me out here too. You can decide for yourself which one he means. I think he may have a meaning in uh, a little bit of all three in his meaning. What then, notwithstanding in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Folks, there's a lesson that you ought to be learning from all of these examples, and that is, here's what you do when you find yourself in prison. That can be a physical prison. It can be a, a, a figurative, figuratively be in prison. It can be something that the devil's trying to keep you in bondage in. Here's what you do to get free. You praise God in the midst of it. For I know that this will turn to my salvation through your prayer And the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, I know you're praying for me. Well, what would they be praying for him for? To be set free. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Folks, I would submit to you that verse 20 is a good Uh, motto or a good mission statement for life according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed 
but that with all boldness, here's what Paul says, here's, here's what I'm operating by and here's what I need more of. But that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul knows that there's a chance that Nero will go wacko on him, not listen to anything he has to say or not care what he has to say, not care about the defense that he makes. Remember, he's before Caesar for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. That's Paul's purpose, to defend his beliefs in Jesus and to tell Caesar about Jesus being raised from the dead. He knows that not everybody's going to accept that. He knows Nero may, may not accept it. So he says, my job, my purpose, my goal is for Christ to be magnified in my body, whether it be by life, being set free, or even by my death. For, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Folks, when you realize there's nothing the devil can really do to you that that, uh, causes you loss, it frees you up to believe God. So many times the devil tries to paralyze us through fear. The only way to overcome fear is to say, well, so what if you do? To face what he's claiming, face his accusation, face his threats. To consider it and say, well, even if that happens, the devil says, well, I'm going to take your life through sickness or disease. Well, even if you do, I go to heaven. How's that gain you? I gain. What does that do for you? I still win. Death has no victory no matter what the circumstances of death are. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I want not. Now, I want you to notice verse 22 again. Paul's saying, I have a choice in this. Now, most people would think it's Nero's choice. Most people would think it's whatever Nero decides, that's the way it's going to go. Paul's saying, I'm not sure uh, about what I'm going to choose. Folks, I want to draw your attention to something that is a principle of the Old Testament. The prophets, those that had the Spirit of God upon them to speak for God, those that stood in the office to represent God to the people, would say time and time again to kings, not only to the kings of Israel, but also to, to foreign nation kings, the Assyrian kings, the um, Philistine kings, and so forth, enemy kings. They would say in so many words, you're just the king. I serve God. If the church would understand that, I mean, if we'd really get that, if we'd really operate that way, we'd have the impact on the world that we should. So Paul's saying, I have a choice in this, and I haven't decided what I'm going to choose. For I'm in a strait betwixt two. This word literally means I'm hemmed in on both sides. I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Well, we know what he wants. He wants to go on and be with the Lord. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He's thought this thing out, hadn't he? He's come to the understanding that these people need me. The people that I love, the people that are in my heart, they need me. To abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And now notice verse 25. He says, here's the only thing that's made me decide so far. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of the faith. In other words, he's saying, because I know you need me, 
I know I'm going to get out of here. Notice what Paul based his knowledge on. He based his knowledge on confidence. Confidence in what? Confidence in his relationship with God and his authority as a believer. It's a good thing to live by. Having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of the faith. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Notice it's all about them and their relationship with Jesus. Now he finishes with the last three or four verses, three verses I guess, by talking about their lifestyle and how important it is for them to do right. He says, only let your conversation, your manner of life, your conduct be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, he said, I want you to be zeroed in on one thing in your life, and that is for the gospel to be advanced and live in such a way that it advances the gospel with people, the, the people around you can see and live in such a way that the gospel can go forward. And in nothing, verse 28, here's a very important scripture, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. He said, don't let your opponents frighten you. Now, folks, you need to realize something, and that is the only opponents that the church at Philippi seems to have are from the outside at this point. He doesn't try to correct any doctrine. He doesn't say there are those among you and so forth. He will warn them against false teachers and so forth later on in the letter, but that's just kind of a general thing. There's not anything specific that he knows about or been made aware of. So the, the adversaries are all from the outside of the church, this church, the church of Philippi at that point in time. So notice how he says, here's how to handle your adversaries. Now think about what that means to these guys in relation to the Acts 16 story. The adversaries rose up when they advanced the gospel by displaying the power of God to set the little girl free from that fortune-telling spirit. So he said, you know as well as I do that sometimes you'll have to stand before your enemies. You're a partner of mine in bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In other words, there are times where it puts you square face-to-face with enemies of the gospel. But don't be terrified by any of them or anything that they claim that they're going to do. And in nothing be terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition. Now, the word perdition is interesting. You look in other translations, and some say destruction, and it certainly could mean destruction. Uh, And in many cases, when it's used, it does. But the word literally means ruin or loss. So there are two possible uh, translations for this. One is your refusal to be afraid by standing in the face of governmental authorities or mobs or whatever the case might be is an evident of the destruction that will come upon them as evildoers. But it also could be translated it's evidence of the life they're missing out on, a life without fear. Either way, he says, and nothing be terrified by your adversaries, which is to them, your lack of fear, is to them an evident token of perdition but to you of salvation and that of God, or meaning that which is of God. For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, folks, I want you to understand Paul's mindset here. And the same mindset he's trying to give over to the church is the same mindset we should have about it too. 
he would try to give us the same mindset, and that's very simply this. He's saying it's a privilege not only to be in Christ, not only to have a relationship with Jesus through salvation, but it's a privilege to suffer for him. That's a foreign concept in modern-day Christianity. But it's just as important today as it ever was in any other day, Paul's day or any other. For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict. In other words, he's saying you're in the same fight as me. Having the same conflict which you saw in me, Acts 16, and now here to be in me in prison in Rome. You're in the same fight as I am. Paul's going to go forward and he's going to tell the, the, the church at Philippi some special things, some unique things, things that he doesn't tell any other church because there's so much in his heart. And not only because there ain't so much in his heart, but the reason why there's so much in his heart is because of the partnership that he has with them. They're with him every step of the way. They can't go where he goes in many cases, but they can help him go. That's the way the church is supposed to work. Church of Philippi, in many ways, is the greatest example of the way the church is supposed to work of anything that we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray, Father, that we would be even of the same character and the mindset as the Philippians, that everything that we do would be the furtherance and the advance of the gospel. Father, we pray that our manner of life and our conduct would be that which is worthy of the gospel, which we're born again of, worthy of the Lord Jesus himself. We pray for ourselves, Father, that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and judgment, that we would be able to approve those things which are excellent and walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Father, help us to realize that the greater one is in us individually and in us collectively so that we have nothing to fear no matter what threat arises no matter what attacks the enemy brings and father we pray that our boldness would be a sign to the world of what it means to live in Christ Jesus for it's in his name we pray amen amen well God bless you thank you for being with us you're dismissed